listening from and welcome to indoor air quality radio it's friday may 1st a gorgeous day up on the mountain here at the world headquarters of the iaq training institute and iaq radio and this week is episode 366 my name is radio joe hughes here with me in the studio is our engineer john you gotta have faith and joining us from studio c in mckee's rocks is the z-man cliff zlotnick hello everybody good, good day, friday to you Good Friday, Cliff. Beautiful day in the Pittsburgh area here. This week we have Dr. Shelley Miller. She's with the University of Colorado Boulder, and we're going to talk about some of her research on the microbiome of water-damaged buildings. We're going to talk a little bit about Indoor Air 2015. She's got some other interesting research we're going to discuss as well. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop, Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IQ Radio when you acquire about their products or services. All right. You can stream the show direct from our new website. We just put up a new website this morning, and it's going pretty well so far. We forgot the go-to show link, but John put one up real quick before we started. You can stream from there, or you can also download shows from the TalkShoe website, and, of course, you can get our podcast on iTunes. Last but not least, please visit the IAQ Training Institute website, for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. Let's turn it over to the Z-Man for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. You can either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in the answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Doug Conan, Aerotech Environmental Services in Dayton, Ohio, for quickly identifying Willis Whitman as the American physicist and inventor best known for his invention of the clean room. The IQ Radio trivia question for Friday, May 1st, 2015, has been sponsored by Triska, the Tri-State Restorers and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Triska is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is trsca.org. Now for today's IAQ Radio trivia question. What type of ultraviolet light is germicidal? Back to you, Joe. 
Okay, thank you, Cliff. Today's guest is Dr. Shelley Miller. She's an associate professor at the University of Colorado in Boulder, and she's in the mechanical engineering department and faculty in the Interdisciplinary Undergraduate Environmental Engineering Program. She does a lot of investigation on indoor air quality, research and investigation on indoor air quality. She assesses exposures to air pollutants and develops and evaluates air pollution control measures. Um, I, I want to go back through her, her actually um, her education a little bit. She started at the Harvey Mudd College in Applied Mathematics and then went to the Claremont Graduate School operations research and statistics for a master's and then another master's at the environmental engineering group at uh, cal berkeley and her phd's from cal berkeley so we've got quite a background there and i want to get started well before we get started let's play a little musical clip for bacteria You know, I also forgot to mention Dr. Miller is the chair of the Healthy Indoors 2015 America that's coming to Boulder, to her campus in Boulder, Colorado, later this year. I think it's June 22 to 25, but we'll ask her. Dr. Miller, do we have you? Yes, good morning. Good morning. Great to have you on board with us. Hey, you've, you've got an undergraduate in math and then several engineering degrees, and I know, you know, we're, we're constantly hearing about and trying to get more women interested in, you know, engineering and science. How did you get interested in the sciences? That's a great question. You know, when I was in high school, I was always doing great in my math and chemistry and physics. I loved those topics, and I had never heard of engineering. In fact, I hadn't heard of engineering until I got to grad school. And when I found out about engineering, I loved it because I could use all of the interest that I had in math and physics and chemistry to solve real problems. And that was so exciting to me. And I think nowadays what we're trying to do to get more young women and more uh, kids interested in engineering is to expose them to it at a younger age. So we... I even taught an engineering class at my kids' elementary school this year to tell them what engineers do and why it would be cool to be an engineer. And I hope that will help get more people into engineering sooner than I found it. I hope so. And that's great that, you know, I was going to actually ask you, you know, why you hadn't heard of it. That's amazing. But that was a little while back. I guess hopefully kids are getting people like you coming in, speaking to them and, getting them more interested in the sciences early on. And boys and girls, we need more scientists. All right, let's move on to the next question here. I, I had, uh, you went to the University of California at Berkeley for one of your master's and your PhD. And then, as I understand it, correct me if I'm wrong, you ended up at the University of Colorado Boulder. Did you go straight to that position? And then what got you interested in the indoor air quality type of work that you're doing now? I started at Berkeley in the environmental engineering program, and my mentor was uh, Dr. Bill Nazaroff there, and he taught me about air pollution and indoor air quality, which is one of his uh, expertise. And so it was just so great to learn about indoor air quality and how to do research in the field and also modeling and measurements under his direction. 
And then I came to Colorado on a chancellor's postdoctoral fellowship, which is a special opportunity here at Colorado to recruit promising young people in the fields of which there aren't enough of that type of person. So, for example, myself, there wasn't a lot of women in engineering, so I was able to take advantage of this great program, come to engineering and do uh, research and apply for a faculty job here, which I joined the faculty in 1998 here at CU Boulder. Okay. And and what's the difference, U Boulder versus uh, California? Oh, by the way, if you can help me get Dr. Nazaroff on, I'd love to get him on. We've never had him yet. And um, is he still teaching? He is. He's teaching, and he's doing some very interesting work these days, halftime in Singapore, which may be why he's a little bit hard to hard track down, but uh, he would be great on the show. Yeah, Singapore's a little ways off, but we've had people from around the globe, so we'd love to get him. Let's let's go a little bit into, um, you're, you've got a new project you're starting on, weatherization and indoor air quality. I'd like to talk a little bit about that before we go into the microbiome of water-damaged homes. Tell us a little bit about that project. <laughs> Sure. We're really excited to start this project. It's a really unique collaboration between engineering, geography, and the School of Public Health here in Colorado. And the goal of the project is to understand weatherization programs in the state of Colorado and the respiratory health that the residents in homes that have been weatherized have perhaps experienced some, maybe or maybe not, some respiratory issues associated with the indoor quality in their home. And so what we would like to do, and we're recruiting right now, are families whose homes have been weatherized, and we will we will need to recruit a large number of homes. So we're hoping to get going on this shortly, and we will do some indoor air quality testing, some blower door testing, and some respiratory um, spirometry on the residents. And hopefully through the skills of the research team and the data analysis that we do, we will be able to understand the impact of weatherization on homes here in Colorado. So it will all be... the marijuana effect there, too. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Cliff, let let me let you jump in here. Okay. No, no, I was fine. I just was thinking about it. You know, they said they were going to be studying the homes, and I just wondered... Um, you know, whether or not, I don't know if anyone's ever really studied, uh, you know, the effects of marijuana smoking in homes on indoor air quality or on health. And you might be able to study that as well, seeing how it's legalized. So. Yes, I don't think there has been a lot, but we're, we are very concerned about it and expect that it is uh, very detrimental to the indoor air quality and health. Hmm. Interesting. And how many people do you need to recruit for that one? We are hoping to get 250 homes in our study, about half of which have been weatherized and half that have not been weatherized. Okay. I see. Now, we've got a guy coming on, Nate Adams. He he may actually be listening in, and he's in the weatherization world. And we've got another guy coming on uh, later this month, now that it's May, Um that also, so I'll try and hook those guys up with you. They're not in your area, but I'm sure they'll know people if you don't already have people. But um, let's, that would let's, be great. Let's go on to the microbiome of water damaged homes. You, you, you've done some. That's what kind of got our attention. I saw an article on on a uh, paper you were working on, 
and, and I understand from talking to you that that research didn't start out to be on water-damaged homes. So if you could tell listeners a little bit about what it was originally intended, you know, what the original intent was, and then how the water-damaged homes became part of your work, and then we'll get into a little more detail on it. Sure. This project started as, uh, as something called the Wildlife of Our Homes Project out of North Carolina and also CU Boulder, funded by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. And the idea was to recruit over 1,000 homes. We now have over 1,600 homes by web contact and by email, and we would send to these homes swab material where they would swab different surfaces of their home and send it back and we would extract the DNA and look at the microbial ecology of these homes. And the results of that study are coming out now and it's fascinating. But one of the questions was, if we just sample a house once, how representative of the home environment is that? So we developed this study in Boulder where we go into a smaller number of homes, just 15 homes, twice a season and repeat these measurements of the microbiome by swabbing surfaces, but also take indoor air quality assessments, uh, airborne particulate matter, CO2 concentrations, temperature, relative humidity, for example. And halfway through that study, the boulder flood hit in September 2013, and half of our study homes were flooded. And the community of Boulder really rallied and tried to help out each other and our neighbors because of the flood impacts of the homes. And what was so interesting about the flood is one home would be flooded and the very next home over would not be flooded. And so my colleague, Noah Fear and I talked about this phenomena and thought we should really try to capitalize on this uh, problem only because we need to study and understand flood-damaged homes. So that's how the study got started. We recruited... 50 homes in Boulder into our study, and um, it went from there. So you had already started the other study. How, how far along were you? We only had one more season to study before we would be done with our year-long 15-home study. We had already sampled winter, spring, and summer, and we were going back into the fall season to get our last samples when the flood hit. Huh. And, and that was... Uh, surface sampling you took swabs basically of the of the indoor environment and how did the air sampling come to be didn't you do some air sampling later as well mm-hmm. yeah in our year-long 15 home study we we did surface sampling that was analogous to the wild home study but we also collected air samples, and we also collected uh, ventilation filter swab samples, or we took pieces of the filter as well. So we had these additional samples of the air, the surfaces, and the ventilation filter. And so this was a, had, we had much more detailed sampling going on in the homes. For the flood study, we did a slightly different sampling strategy because these homes were, we needed, we needed a different approach. So we used an approach that had been developed by the research group at Berkeley where they hung sterilized petri dishes from the ceiling to collect the ambient air as it moved through the environment and just deposited on that surface. So we hung these petri dishes in the flood-damaged homes for about two months to collect the material, and then we analyzed that material. 
How high up were these? Are they a foot from the ceiling, two foot? Yeah, probably about two feet, between one and two feet, just above uh, the reach of the occupants so they wouldn't run into them. Okay. Cliff, do you want to jump in or want me to keep uh, going? I'm good. All right, I'm good. Let, me, let me get back to the original study. What What did you find with respect to changes from season to season with respect to the well, microbiome? Yeah, such a good question. You know, our hypothesis was that we would find differences that related to seasonal variability. Interestingly enough, we are just putting together the paper now, and we found there's no seasonal effect. In fact, the variability within a home is very significant, and it's probably as significant uh, as the variability um, between homes. So my home compared to your home is different. But my home sample today compared to next week is also very different. So the microbial ecology of a home is, is variable. It changes all the time. And, and we don't, in our study over the year-long development of it, we, we didn't really find anything yet to predict that variability. Okay. And now with respect to um, the air sampling, tell us a little bit about what you, what you found there. Yeah, what we found was that the the air sample and the ventilation sample were were very useful for providing microbiological material and information, but uh, the samples weren't as diverse as the surface samples. And that is because we think that we're just collecting material for a short time period, you know, 24 hours or, or three months. Whereas a surface sample, we would swab your door sill, which you've probably never cleaned in your home in your life. And so we've collected lots and lots of material over the years of your home. And so that sample was very diverse and had a lots of different microbes in it. Okay. And, and Cliff, I want to make sure you get a chance to jump in. Uh, I'm still good, Jeff. Okay. Still All right. Good. Now, right in the way. I understand. And by the way, Cliff does a blog after each show, so he's he's going to be writing um, writing away and, and checking. Now, what what did you find with respect to where the organisms you find came from? Hmm. So we found for the bacterial species, most of them were associated with in the home with the the people in the home and the pets in the home. Whereas when you looked more at the fungi of the home, that was more related to what was outside of the home. There was not really a significant indoor source that we found in our non-flooded homes, in our regular population of homes. Okay. And let me, let me get into um, another question here on, on the microbiome of these water-damaged homes. Um, what what did your study suggest about the effectiveness of the remediation of the water damaged mm -hmm. homes? And can you tell us a little bit about what type of remediation was done? Mm -hmm. Sure. So most of the homes, in fact, I'm sure all of the homes that were flooded had already been remediated by the time we started our study, and that was two months after the flood. 
And these homeowners went in and knew. I just really appreciate how educated and and thoughtful they were because they knew they needed to get all this damaged water, damaged material out of their home as quickly as possible. So neighbors were helping to pull out carpet and pulling down sheetrock and just really doing the day of and the day after the flood. And so then once the material was pulled out, the, the lots of people hired companies to come and help them, and some people didn't. I know my colleague Noah Fear helped remediate a lot of homes just uh, by themselves. So they would pull out the water-damaged home material and then and then let it dry out and then replace it with new building material. And so what we what we found from our study was the water-damaged homes had distinctly different microbial communities compared to the non-flooded homes, even after remediation and after two months of our sampling. And we found this to be different uh, very different, statistically different. And we, what we also found was that the, the flooded home was enriched in fungi species, not bacteria, but there were three times more fungi in the home compared to, compared to the non-flooded home. And so just talking about these results, it made us think, you know, that it's important to remediate these homes but perhaps we need to also be thinking more carefully about the process and how to do it. And maybe we aren't letting it dry out long enough. Or maybe I think we need to spend more time figuring this out. What is the right thing to do? And I, I am sure that eventually these homes will go back to the same microbial ecology as they had before the flood. But I don't know how long that will take. And and it probably won't cause significant health effects to that many people, but some sensitive people will be affected. So will you continue to follow these homes? We don't have plans to do that, and because we need research funding to do that, we don't have any research funding to do that. Uh, we don't have plans, but it would be a very unique and interesting opportunity if, if we had it to go back into the home now and check it out again. I like that idea, Joe. Well, the reason Dr. I Miller, say... Was, was go there? ahead. Well, Dr. Miller, was there a difference in, um, I guess, microorganisms between the houses that were professionally remediated and those that were not? We haven't yet looked at the data well enough to, to answer that question, and I think that's a really interesting thing to look into. So, But I can't answer that right now. I do not know. Um, If I was going to throw something out and just get a comment, you know, one of the things that occur, the types of equipment that are utilized in these situations do one of two things. They either blow air around, and, you know, typically that's one of the things that happens uh, is there's a lot of air movement, and air is directed on wet materials, and then there's uh, a lot of dehumidification equipment as well. And typically, I would say the air movement equipment outnumbers the dehumidification equipment, you know, maybe by a factor of four, five, ten to one. And I'm just wondering whether or not, after knowing that now, whether you think it had anything to do with your results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I find that to be fascinating, and I wonder which approach would be more useful 
you know, when we did our study, we did measure the relative humidity of the homes. This was the air relative humidity, and they were, there was no difference between the homes of the air relative humidity. And I, I know you've had Jeff Siegel on the show, and he uh, measures surface water um, and the humidity near the surfaces. And so that would be an interesting question, and I wonder whether the removal of humidity would be more effective than air blowing around. I don't know the answer. I think it's. I think it needs to be looked at. Well, you mentioned another thing that, that needs to be looked at, and, and this is why we'd like to have people like you on with those of us that are out in the field doing this kind of work on a regular basis. You mentioned that you, you thought maybe the areas would come back to a normal, what they call a normal fungal ecology in one of the main standards that mold remediation people follow. It's the IICRC's S520. And mm-hmm. that's a really um, kind of a, a, a controversial question. You know, do we need to do as much cleanup as we're doing? And if so, are we are we maybe overkilling the cleanup? Because once we fix the moisture problem or dry the building out, whichever, you know, whichever is necessary based on what happened to that building, won't it eventually go back to normal fungal ecology anyway? So mm-hmm. that's kind of why I asked that question. Yeah, you know, I when I when we looked at the literature on remediation and flooding, there was a little bit of work previously done, and it might suggest some ideas that it does take a fairly long time. There was a, a paper about the New Orleans New Orleans remediation effort, and they tried to track the biocontaminant concentrations after remediation and really found only slight decreases after remediation. Um, And then a study that was looking at two years after a hurricane, and that's a long time, found slight decreases again compared to those measured directly after the hurricane. So a slight decrease, but not a significant decrease from what I can tell. And we did a study where we looked in three months after remediation efforts in 2005 for a flood in Colorado, and again, still didn't see uh, completely returning back to the the lower lower levels of biological material in the air hmm. as w- without flood. And so, I, you know, I think we need to look at it. But I, I trust bio I, I trust biology after working at it for a while that it there wants to be an equilibrium and back to the place that it's that it's healthy um, if we can figure out how to support that. And how long it, that can take. And how long that takes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because that's that's a big question. Now, I just want to go back for a moment and make sure we clarify the, the sampling you did. This was all um, surface sampling and then air sampling, and your analysis was qPCR, quantitative polymerase chain reaction. I hope I got that right. You got that right. And and it's good to clarify because the way you sample and the analysis you do on the samples is, is very important. and it's, It tells you different information. And for the flood study, we used passive air sampling and qPCR uh, and uh, analysis as well as DNA extraction and typing. And that doesn't tell you whether the organism is active. It tells you that it's present. And it tells you lots of information, but it doesn't tell you uh, whether it's going to be growing or not. And that would take culturing, but the problem with culturing is very 
few organisms grow on culture. You know, 1% of what's available will grow on a culture. So we, we, don't have, we have these two very important techniques of which uh, don't tell us the whole picture, of course. And how are the costs coming along with respect to the qPCR do you have any idea what those costs are nowadays or did you do it at a lab did you have a lab in-house we have a, a very uh, high-powered lab here at CU Boulder that does these analyses and they're still not cheap you know I my colleague uh, we budget quite a bit for that you know I'm, I'm even thinking in the hundreds of dollars per sample uh, so unfortunately it's not cheap um, for 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 us to do, yeah. Well, and it's not cheap for practitioners. The last I saw, for a like an ERMI type sample, the environmental or EPA's relative moldiness index, you're looking at two fifty, three hundred dollars, and that's just giving you what like thirty or so organisms. How many organisms are you seeing when mm-hmm. you do the sampling you do? Well, interestingly enough, we see from the this technique, um, I think we were think, seeing in the hundreds of unique species, you know, 400, 100 to 400 unique species. Uh, we get a lot of DNA hits, but then they're the same organism. So in our flood study, that was kind of where we, where we were. And the army's just fungi. So you're looking at hundreds of different species of bacteria and fungi or one or the other? Both, right. Okay, okay. And, and the other thing I wanted to ask you about, we, you, you mentioned doing some research prior uh, to this to you know, see what other papers had been written, what other research had been done to help you know, you know, either um, guide what you were going to do or give you good background information for what you're going to do. One of the other things I think you looked at was uh, what type of health effects, I don't know, maybe I should word this differently, what what type of um, results we get after remediation with respect to health. And there wasn't a whole lot mm-hmm. as I understand it. Yeah, there's some, there's, there's a lot of work trying to understand the impact of water damage buildings on damp buildings on health. And you know, we find that after floods, the respiratory and immune response uh, kicks in and you're exposed to these contaminated surfaces and water-damaged buildings, and especially sensitive populations find they have rhinocinusitis and eye irritation and asthma and respiratory issues. And so it, it, it points to the fact that we, we really do need to do something to remediate the water damage. Uh, because it does impact the health of the occupants. I guess my, uh, I should have made it a little clearer. I mean, as far as the difference in uh, health after doing a remediation, I don't know that there's been a lot that's studied before and after. Oh, you're right. No, the, we did not see that many health assessments before and after floods. There may be some more work coming out around Katrina or the hurricane um, in the east that I um, that I'm not familiar with, but there really isn't a lot. It's it's there are some papers showing the biocontaminant levels, but not the health effects and whether there was a change. Okay, we've got to take a break. We're going to break and thank our sponsors. We'll be back with the second half of our interview. We've got a, a great interview with Dr. Shelley Miller, uh, calling out of the University of Colorado Boulder. We'll be back in 90 seconds.
the Indoor Air Quality Association, a nonprofit, multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at iaqa.org. Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions. We use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Check them out at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors, John Don Products, or restoration and abatement contractor shop. Visit them at johndon.com. Clean Facts, the number one information source for cleaning and restoration professionals. Check them out at cleanfactswithanx.com. IAQ.net and Healthy Indoors Magazine, a free online digital magazine for industry professionals and consumers. Subscriptions available at IAQ.net. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IAQ Radio when you acquire about their products services okay we're back for the second half of our interview i just want to apologize to any listeners that are getting blocked that are coming in late but we've got one knucklehead that seems to think it's funny to make inappropriate comments on the chat board so we're going to block every new person that comes in and i apologize if it's one of our regular listeners all right let's get back with uh dr miller here i want to talk a moment about um you know, with respect to this research, what what are your thoughts on what we learned from it? You know, what surprised you about any of the results? Uh, you mean specifically with the flood home study? Yes. Yeah, I think we were surprised that so that after remediation efforts and then after our two months of sampling. We still saw significant differences in the microbial communities and also higher levels of fungi, fungi in the in the homes, and so that was that was surprising to us. And although there was no relative humidity differences, and I think we'd like to explore this idea further uh, with respect to how do we best remediate. And I don't know the answer, but that was really interesting to us. And what? What would you think that would be some practical things for people that are in the field? I mean, basically what you just said, that we don't, you know, uh, that that things change by season pretty significantly. I guess that was from the original research. Our first study showed that the microbial ecology of our home is, is quite variable, and it really doesn't depend on the season. It depends... Uh, you know, it comes from the people and the pets that live in the home and then what kind of vegetation your home is surrounded by. And I think what we want to have for a healthy home is is good ventilation while at the same time you know, being cognizant of energy uses in our home, but good ventilation in our home and reduced sources of contaminants that are emitted into the home. And if we can keep this balance, then we will have a healthy ecology. And when it gets disturbed by water damage, uh, then we have different sources of microbes coming into the home. And how to get back to the original balance uh, may take a while and may take some new techniques by, um, by uh, uh, water-damaged remediation. And 
with respect to um, the buildings, you mentioned ventilation would be important, but were you able to tease out any differences in filtration? I mean, did people have different levels of filtration, and did that matter? You know, we it, we had a small sample, so it's not completely obvious, but we did see a very interesting filtration effect with with three of our homes compared to the rest of our homes. These three homes had uh, electret-type filters, so they were slightly lower efficiency filters, but they had been electrically enhanced, so then they were actually higher efficiency filters. And in the end, we found uh, lower particulate levels on average in those homes with these with these different filter types in their HVAC system. And so we thought that was pretty unique. Now, that's only three homes out of 15, so I'm not sure what you can say too much about it, but that drew us, drew our interest, I would say. Were there any other things that kind of got your interest that we didn't talk about so far? Well, one of the homes in our study was very tight. It had been weatherized and had radiant heating for for radiant flooring for heating and what we found in that home was a very poor uh, air exchange with the outside so that particulate levels that were elevated from cooking events, from cleaning, just stayed elevated for very long periods. And it turned out the homeowners in that house had respiratory illnesses and asthma symptoms that had actually come on once they moved into this house. And when we reported to them our findings, they said, what What do you recommend? And I always, I hesitate because I don't like to ask my homeowners to spend lots of money on new things to make their home better, but I really felt strongly they needed to improve their ventilation in that home. And so they actually did. They put in in an ERV, an energy recovery ventilating system, and it's a neat system. It comes on; it's always running. It comes comes on more or less uh, during the hour, depending on their setting. But we went in just this past month to measure the pollution in their home after this installation, and it had done a good job of clearing the air of the particulate levels that were enhanced by cooking and cleaning, etc. And the homeowners were actually feeling better. They didn't have to use their asthma inhalers anymore. So that's a very anecdotal story of one home that we worked with, but it's, it's a good story, and I'm, I'm glad it worked out that way. That's wonderful. Now, I, I got a text from a listener that I, I'm going to reword a little bit. Did you notice any other um, differences in the homes based on things like housekeeping? or the, I know you measured relative humidity, temperature. Did you notice anything changing with respect to the amount of uh, organisms in homes that kind of correlated with those issues? We found a, an, what, the only parameter so far we've, we've found an associa- association between the microbial ecology and the home is uh, carpeting. We do find a relationship between the amount of carpeting in the home and the, and the microbial um, ecology in the home, which we found to be interesting. But the homes that we studied are, are were well-built, well-designed, well-operated homes. And so for the most part, the air quality was exacerbated when they were cooking. And that's about it. And the, otherwise, um, when we study, for example, homes in Denver that have, that, are, that have a lower socioeconomic status community, 
living in them and they're not as well built and they're smaller, et cetera, we see much different air quality impacts. You know, we, they're crowded, they're, there's too many people in the house, there's too much po- um, particulate levels are elevated always because of the people in the cooking, but not in this population. So I just want to contrast that to a previous study we did where we, we did see difference, differences in homes. And Could you, you comment on, on the carpeting yeah. uh, and what effect that you saw with the microbial ecology? Sure. We're still exploring this, so this is preliminary, but what we saw was that if you had more carpeting in your home, you had higher di- higher diversity in your home. More different, Lots more different organisms were living in your home compared to if you didn't have as much carpet. And, and in your home, which would you prefer, greater diversity or less diversity? Well, you know, when you talk to the microbiologists, I think they they stress that greater diversity is better. Okay. And and usually you hardly ever see too many um, toxic species, but I think the higher diversity, the better. Yeah, I'm not sure you're aware, but, you know, in many situations, I think it's been advocated that carpeting be removed because um, they say it contributed to poor indoor air quality because there were emissions and so on and so forth when the carpets were first installed. And I think it moved a lot of people away. But, you know, I don't know that anyone's ever examined this before. And that's really why I I, I asked the question, because carpet manufacturers, you know, for many, many years have said that, you know, carpets are good. They uh, act as a filter. They act as a sink. They collect stuff and uh, so on and so forth. And, you know, it seems that perhaps they're right. Well, and I, I think it's a, I think it's an important question. I, I, I don't have a lot of carpet in my house. I worry about it as being a sink, and you know the the relationship between carpet and microecology is is we're still looking at it. So I'm not sure that I would advocate for putting carpet in because of this result. Okay. What I'd like to do is this at this point move on to um, the, the the conference you've got coming up out in, in Boulder. It is in Boulder, Colorado. Healthy Buildings 2015, and uh, first, I guess, um, how does this work? ISEAC, the International Society for Indoor Air Quality and Climate, I like to spell out these acronyms. Um, is they the, Are they the sponsor? Is the University of Colorado the sponsor? Are you co-sponsors? How does that work? Yeah, this is an ISEAC conference, and they're the sponsors. And then they hold the conferences at different locations around the globe, and this is the first conference that's just going to be held in the Americas. ISEAC is now starting a regional conference series. And so health, uh, Healthy Buildings used to be an international series that came after Indoor Air to promote uh, more practical interactions and, and taking the science that had been disseminated at Indoor Air into the workplace, into the practice and field. And uh, what we've, what ISIAC is now um, doing this year is having a conference in Americas, and they just finished a conference in Europe. And so we're having the conference here in Boulder at the University of Colorado Boulder. All right. And then with respect to the research to practice and, and bringing them together, what, what is um, specifically happening at, at your conference coming up here to help kind of promote that uh, interaction? Mm-hmm. Well, what we tried to do is uh, interact with more practitioners and more um, 
consultants and more architects and more building managers to actually plan the program and then invite them to come and participate in the program through workshops and talks. So our conference advisory committee is made up of um, myself and a, uh, some a representative from the EPA and also a representative from uh, a company that that does consulting in buildings. And it's great to have the input from different, um, different people and different expertise. And so we have a really great lineup of workshops on schools, on climate change impacts, on the microbiome, and practitioners are being, uh, are, are being involved in pre- presentation. And then a lot of great, great presentations from practitioners as well that are going to happen at the conference. You know, when when you mention microbiome, that that seems to be something that gets research dollars. And and I'm wondering, um, is there a way we could tie that together with with culture type or sport trap type or typical, you know, things that guys do out in the field that the we can't afford to do the the you know the PCR all that often. So I'm wondering, is is that something you think in the future you could sneak into a uh, you know one of these ones that are funded for the microbiome yeah and i i think that some of my colleagues have been trying to do that to understand what the differences in the data are i think that's a really important thing to do and there has been an increase in funding on the microbiology of the indoor environment because the sloan foundation has really wanted to um, investigate this. It's never been done before. It's a new field, and it's the opportunity is now available because of the Human Genome Project. They, we now have the technology to understand the microbiome of all sorts of environments, including the human body and the home and outdoors. And so that's why you see a lot of emphasis and study of this particular topic at this time. But that doesn't mean we shouldn't continue and to understand all of the um, many, many years of work we've done with culturing and spore traps as well. It's, it's all important and we need to integrate it. And, and bridge that gap between the time now where we're basically, that's 95, 99% of what practitioners are using eventually. I think we'll go more to, you know, the type of uh, QPCR or whatever that's being developed, but we've got to kind of figure out how we bridge that gap. And if you know of any researchers that are working on that, please let us know. I'd love to bring them on and talk a little bit about that. And and even if you can get somebody from Sloan that would be interested in coming on, we'd love to have them. Uh, I don't know if they have anybody that understands this topic that well, or how do you, how does that work? Do you just do you contact an individual at Sloan? Do you send a proposal in? You're not sure who reviews it? Oh, you know, we there's a call for proposals, and then you work up an, uh, a research project and send it in to be peer-reviewed by the, by the scientists in the area, and then um, you get comments back and, and support if the project is, um, is one that, that they want to work with. And so it's a really important, rigorous process for, for how to get the projects selected and funded. And, and, um, but so, yeah. 
I would love to. But get I wanted one to. Um, I wanted to emphasize the um, the carpet result that I talked to you about, and yes, I pulled what? up my slide, and I'm going to actually post it on my on my website, because what I show is that the number of carpeted rooms is associated with percent taxa, but it's not just uh, all taxa. It's skin taxa, skin bacteria taxa. So my original comment was it's, it's associated with diversity, but it's really with skin diversity. And so what, what that tells me is homes with more carpeting have more skin bacteria in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it kind of supports this idea that carpet is a reservoir for all sorts of stuff, and the more carpeting in your house, the more skin tax to get aerosolized. <laughs> so it's like That's a suspension skin thing. So do you have a slideshow that goes along with this uh, research? Can you say that again, Joe? Do you have a slideshow that kind of goes along with and, and explains what you found in this research? We we have some presentations we've given at conferences and are now turning that into papers, but some of that uh, we've made available um, through my website, so I'll check, around, check out and see if there's anything that people can take a look at. Yeah, that would be great, and if we could link yeah. to it from our website, I think people who have listened would want to you know delve into this a little further. Sounds great. All right. Well, let's let's talk. Cliff, I'm sorry. Did you have a you wanted to jump in, I believe? No, I didn't. All right. I want to go to another topic that um I noticed in your in researching prior to this show. You've done some work on understanding the role of ventilation um in buildings and and I'm curious what key topics from that type of study you feel would benefit those that inspect design or remediate um, I think healthcare facilities is one of your focuses but correct me if I'm wrong yeah we have been working with healthcare facilities focusing on is there anything from the engineering community we can use to improve operation and decrease infectious disease transmission and mainly what I've been looking at there is can we use ultraviolet, ultraviolet germicidal radiation to disinfect the air in a hospital? And also, how do we control the ventilation in certain situations where we might need to use the facility as an isolation room or an isolation ward if there is an, a, a community infection or a flu outbreak? What do we do about the ventilation, and how do we change it so that we don't spread this disease all over the hospital, but yet we can contain it to a room or a ward? So that's kind of where where I've been spending my time with ventilation and control technology is the application of infectious disease transmission. And can you give us some general ideas? I mean, how could we take what you're learning in, in the healthcare setting and maybe help people in other types of buildings, commercial buildings, residential buildings. Is there anything you see there that would kind of be a crossover? Mm. Well, I can speak generally to the use of ultraviolet germicidal irradiation, and I think this technology is very useful for different different environments and different settings. And you want to use it in a facility that has a lot of people in it, like it could be crowded, it could be... We've seen it applied in jails, in homeless shelters, in waiting rooms, uh, places where there's a lot of people present and somebody might be there that, that could have an infection that could be spread airborne. And you also can use UV when you cannot increase the ventilation capacity. It's just beyond the cost of remediating, of 
of the building, renovating the building, and it's just very hard to do. So we put UV lights in to enhance the air exchange rate, the disinfection of the air that you can't get through ventilation. And, and these would be what the, I think they call them, like upper level, or how do they define that? Yeah, there's a couple of different ways you can use them. You can throw them right into the ventilation duct, and you can disinfect the air that's coming in or being recirculated, and you can also hang lamps in the upper part of the room to disinfect the room. You have to have good mixing because the air where the people are have to reach the air where the lights are, but that's that's not that hard to do. And so we like to um, investigate ways to use these lights where you're needing um, enhanced air exchange rate to decrease disease probability. And... I've got, I've got Go a question, ahead, uh, uh, Dr. Moore. What do you think would have happened if you went back to these flooded houses again? And what about, you know, can you speculate on what effect, if any, using UV, uh, you know, germicidal UV would have had on, you know, remediation? Mm-hmm. You know, we tried to look at that in a small study, and we want to look at it further what I think is going to be the approach I'd like to investigate is when a home is flooded, you take out all the material and then before you rebuild the home and put in new material, does, uh, does it, is it, can it be, can UV be used to irradiate the surfaces that have been exposed and then water damage to help uh, disinfect and to kill the surface organisms? And I'd like to explore that to see if that would be a useful way to supplement um, remediation, I don't know the answer because when we tried it, we did not. We ha- we just tried it with all surfaces in the room, and it was a very compl- complex study that that we need to keep working on. You know, the reason that Joe and I ask some of these questions is we know people that are writing standards. You know, we probably could fix you up with uh, you know, high quality remediators that are, you know, right in your area there that, you know, if you wanted to study something or if you wanted to go out on a project and see how things were done, uh, you know, uh, you know, we could make that happen. So. Yeah, that's great. That sounds very interesting because it would be, it's hard to get into the field with these kinds of studies and, you know, um, and I think that's a, a really unique opportunity. Well, you mentioned on the UV, um, use in duct work and, and I wanted to know if you'd comment because we've we've had discussion of this before. We go out and we see these HVAC companies that have been sold on throwing in one UV light bulb in a return air duct uh, just prior to the filters. Uh, is there any, do you see any value in that kind of application? Well, there's a couple of uses for UV in that regard. One is if you are trying to disinfect air as it's passing through the system, you need to make sure you have enough radiation in the system and that the air is being exposed for the right amount of time at the right level to do anything. The other application is if we use a UV bulb to irradiate uh, the surface of a cooling coil to decrease any microbial contamination that's occurred because the coil is wet. And that's a whole different application. There is, there is a study uh, that has shown that it, it can, if you do that in a building, it can improve some worker health in the building, which is really interesting. Uh, but there's really very little research done on how how 
these systems work and how effective they are. And we're doing one right now at, at CU Boulder. Um, there's some work coming out of Penn State and probably Singapore as well on these UV irradiated cooling coil studies. And the CDC just finished a study too. Oh, no, that was a UV surface disinfection project. But So there's work going on, but it's it's coming slowly. Well, with what we have so far, can you make any suggestions with respect to the placement of, and I'm talking specifically about on coils, because that has been, my experience has been the ones you just throw into a return air don't do a whole lot. Um, The ones on coils, though, seem to keep the coils cleaner, but it's the positioning of the the light, you know, that a coil, uh, depending on whether it's what type of mechanical system it is, it may be side to side, up, up, down, etc. Is it best to have that UV on one side or the other, like as the air is coming in or on, on the on the other side as the air is going out? Any thoughts mm. on that? Yeah, some of the results of our work will help to understand the impact of what is going on when the lamp is on one side versus the other. What we're finding is that if you have a wet coil and it's high humidity and it's warm and it's it's wet all the time, then the UV radiation on the surface will decrease uh, that contamination and will improve the coil effectiveness. And we're finding that it's interesting where the material sloughs off of the coil, like it will come off the backside of the coil. Um, and depending on where you have the lamp, you'll get uh, you'll get some sloughing off on the other side. And so that work we're still we're still investigating. We'll be presenting that work at Healthy Buildings this summer. It should be really fun to do that. Um, but I think it's a it's a worthwhile technology to use, especially in climates that are have high humidity and, and need a lot of cooling. Interesting, Cliff. Anything you wanted to add? I'm good. good. I've got two more questions. The first one is, you know, you you do a lot of work and have been for years on indoor air quality from more of a research perspective. Uh, We've got a lot of practitioners out there. What tips or what um, information that you've seen over the years that you're pretty confident with, with with respect to research? Would you like to see us kind of get out into the practical world a little bit more? Hmm. Oh, such a good question, Joe. I knew you'd come up with one to stump me. I spent a lot of time working in homes, and uh, and so one of my one of my dreams is to figure out how we could better design uh, a ventilation system for a home that is energy efficient and also improves air quality. And, and, and so I'm, I'd like to see some ideas from practitioners and from building designers about how we, how we could do that and implement that into homes. And, and things like, why don't we have a hood over every gas stove that's venting the pollution while you're cooking? That needs to be done. Um, very simple things like let's get flame retardants out of the indoor environment, and that would be a good move. Um, you know, so there's some of these things that I think we, we, we should be looking at, and, and those are just three that I think of. Well, those are excellent. And the last one is fascinating to me because I, you know, I try and keep up with what's coming out, and there's more and more research about the, the issues with respect to these flame retardants. 
But I don't see anything on what we do to to remediate that. You know, if you've got a home with, with young children, or you're, let's say you're buying a new home, is there something you can do when you buy that new home other than source removal, which obviously you want to take out the couch that has the flame retardant or whatever, but what about the stuff that's already been released in that home? Is there anything out there? Is anybody studying that? Does HEPA vacuuming work? Does wet wiping work? Does more ventilation work? Um, that's the kind of thing I'd love to see. I would too, and I and I think those all the things you mentioned do work, and and I think the the work coming out of Arlene Bloom's group at Berkeley is showing that over time and with these techniques, you can lower the reservoirs of, of flame retardants in your home. And so I think it's important to know that you can do that and you should do that. And there were three things you mentioned. The first was ventilation. The last was flame retardants. And I'm, I'm having a mind block on the second one. Oh, the hoods over the stoves. Hoods, yeah, I'm a big advocate of, of turning on your hood and making sure it's vented outside while you're cooking. And I know that's a difficult thing to do in multi-family housing, uh, but in single-family homes, I think I think it should be required, even if it's an electric stove. Well, I think that's a great tip for listeners because we're out in these homes, and, and even if we just tell people, hey, you know, there's some pretty good research that indicates if you use that fan a little more often are a little more conscientious about it, you're going to have a healthier indoor environment. And um, I think that's a great thing to bring up to our listeners so that, you know, it's on the top of their minds. It's a simple, inexpensive thing to do. You're going to lose a little bit of uh, cooling or heating, whatever, but it's definitely worthwhile. What about when the stove is not on and just the pilot light's on? Any information on that that you can make us aware of? No, I don't have any information on that. I, I, I think that most of the impacts we've seen is when, when you're actually actively cooking, whether it's electric stove because of the cooking of the food and the, uh, and the aerosolization of the oils and anything that comes off the food or the flames as you're cooking with gas. So I think those are the, where you get the most contribution to, to the indoor environment. But I don't know about the, that's a really good question. Well, I tell you, this has been fascinating. A lot of fun having you, Dr. Shelley Miller. Before we go, is there anything we missed that you'd like to add or any, you know, anything you'd like to add in general? Well, I'd love to see all of you come to Healthy Buildings in 2015, July 19 to 22. It's going to be a really great conference, and you're going to meet a lot of fun people and, and learn some new stuff. So I would really love to see more of you come. Please email me with any questions you have about that. You know, thanks for the opportunity to share one of my passions, which is air, indoor quality, and, and get to talk about it with you. I really appreciate it. Well, we appreciate you joining us. We'll put the link up uh, to Healthy Buildings. And one other thing we can do, and we talked about this, is if we can get anybody that's speaking that, you know, you think would have a, a topic that's particularly interesting to practitioners, Let's get them on again before Healthy Buildings 2015, maybe two of them. Um, you know, we've got a few, three, a couple months before that comes up. So um, if we can get a couple people in, that will also help to promote the show. That's a great idea. 
I'll work with you to do that. All right. Well, it's been fantastic having you. We appreciate you coming on. I know you've got another meeting to run to, but this is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks to this week's guest, Dr. Shelley Miller out of the University of Colorado Boulder and also the chair of Healthy Buildings 2015. Great stuff. I want to thank the Z-Man, my co-host, Cliff. Good job. Oh, it's fun. Interesting stuff. I'm sure you have a great blog. Um, John, got to have faith. No glitches today except for one person that uh, thought it was funny to type in stupid things, but we'll work on that. And, of course, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. We'll all be back here next Friday. Next Friday, the Z-Man and I are coming to you live from the RIA and the IICRCA conference in uh, Las Vegas, Nevada. So uh, looking forward to that one, Cliff. Me too. All right. We'll be back next Friday at noon with the next episode of IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 